Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our connection to our own humanity. This is episode 81, another joint episode with Melita Thomas of Tudor Times on Margaret Pohl. Just a quick note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, and you can discover lots of great new podcasts at agorapodcastnetwork.com. Remember, you can get links to more information and resources and sign up for the mailing list for extra mini casts and goodies like that at englandcast.com. So now let me introduce you to Melita. Melita is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. Margaret Poole, or, or- poll. Um, the, the pronunciation is uh, one of those things that people have been arguing over for centuries. Her actual maiden name, insofar as people use them in those days, was Margaret Plantagenet. She was the daughter of the Duke of Clarence, and so she was the niece of Edward IV and Richard III. And her mother, Isabel Neville, was one of the great English heiresses, uh, daughter of Warwick the Kingmaker. So Margaret was right at the heart of the, of the York family and like everybody who was born in the 1470s, was tangentially affected by the Wars of the Roses. Uh, When she was born, her uncle Edward had been king for, um, well, if you exclude the the short flirtation with Lancaster in 1471, he'd been king for about 12 years. But Edward and his brother Clarence didn't get on for various reasons, mainly to do with Clarence being um, overambitious and coveting his brother's throne, probably. So there'd been some some difficulty between the two brothers, which eventually ended in Clarence being uh, accused of treason and tried in front of the House of Commons with uh, sorry, tried in front of the House of Parliament with Edward himself actually laying the charges and arguing the case. Uh, Clarence was convicted and executed, possibly by being drowned in a butt of Malmsey, uh, as the the old legend is. And Margaret effectively was uh, orphaned at a very young age. Her mother had died in childbirth. Edward seems to have taken his responsibilities to uh, 
Margaret and her brother Edward, the Earl of Warwick, quite seriously. And so far as we can tell, Margaret was brought up with his daughters, Elizabeth of York and her sisters. It's not absolutely certain. There's no definite records, but that seems the most likely place for her to, for her to have lived. And things went on much as they uh, did for, for young members of the royal family. She was educated to uh, the the standards of the time. She could read and write and um, spoke French and played the virginals, uh, obviously the usual religious upbringing. Then in 1485, her, uh, sorry, in 1483, her uncle Edward died. There was the brief uh, reign of her cousin Edward V, and then Richard III took the throne. During Richard's reign, not much information about where Margaret was, probably still with her cousins, for, uh, but uh, once they'd come out of sanctuary. And in the end of 1485, when uh, Henry Tudor invaded, Margaret was sent to Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire with her um, the, the princesses, the York sisters Elizabeth and Catherine. So when Henry VII won the throne, Margaret was brought back to London and probably housed with his mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort. When he married Elizabeth of York, Margaret became part of their uh, their court. She was one of the ladies-in-waiting to her cousin, the Queen, along with Elizabeth's sisters, Anne and Catherine. Then there's some controversy about when Margaret was married. Uh, some historians put it around about 1491, but her most um, comprehensive biographer, a woman called Hazel Pierce, has argued for it being a bit earlier than that, in 1487. And the husband that Henry VII chose for her was a chap by the name of Sir Richard Poole. Now, at face value, he seems to be, obviously he was of much lower rank than than her. She, she He was only a knight, but he was not... Um, he was not just an ordinary knight. His mother was Margaret Beaufort's half-sister. So he was actually a cousin to the king. And he was very close to his, very close to the king. So although it wasn't a good match from the point of view of a title and money, it did bring her, it, it kept her within the, the royal family. And uh, Richard was very much favoured by, by Henry VII. So perhaps not such a bad match as appears. There was a, quite a big age gap between them, probably about 15 years. But it, as far as you can tell, it seemed to have been a happy marriage. And the reason I assume that is that long after Richard's death, uh, Margaret paid for one of the most beautiful chantry chapels in all of England for them both. And that's at Christchurch in Dorset. An absolutely superb example of uh, late medieval architecture, well worth a visit. And later, she also had new plate and new furnishings embroidered with his coats of arms as well as hers so all of that would suggest that actually she wasn't wasn't unhappily married to him so during the 1490s they were in and about the court until Richard uh, became one of the senior members of uh, the Prince of Wales household so that's Arthur Prince of Wales the son of Henry and Elizabeth and Richard was one of the uh, senior members of Arthur's household. And uh, Richard and Margaret spent a good deal of time in the Welsh marches at Stourton Castle and at Ludlow as, as part of Arthur's household. Uh, during that period, Margaret had several children. She had her, her oldest son was Henry, very tactful choice of name there. And then there was uh, Arthur, Reginald and Geoffrey among, uh, and a daughter, Ursula. There may have been another daughter who died young. And my guess is she would have been Elizabeth if there had been another daughter. Ursula was a name that had been used in 
the York family. Uh, Edward IV had a, a sister named Ursula who died young. So there they were. They were living in the marches, doing whatever whatever people did in those days. They also had a house at Bochmer in Buckinghamshire and a couple of other properties. And then Arthur married Catherine of Aragon and went back to Ludlow and took up his married life there. Richard Poole was definitely there and it has always been assumed that Margaret was with him. And it's probably at this time that she and Catherine of Aragon became friends. And there was quite, there was a, quite a big age gap. Margaret was um, about 10 years older, but they seemed to have, they, they were certainly friends later in life. So this is probably the time when they first met. Margaret was widowed in 1504. And Henry VII, I have to say, didn't cover himself with glory in the way he uh, treated her. Uh, he was very niggardly about money, which considering he had uh, her brother's earldom of Warwick, he gave her a very meagre pension to live on. But in 1509, everything changed because Henry VIII became king, Catherine of Aragon I aside, and Margaret was instantly rushed back to court, became lady-in-waiting to the queen. And Within uh, within a couple of years, she petitioned Henry for the restoration of the Earldom of Salisbury. Now, the Earldom of Salisbury had been held by Margaret's great-grandmother. It was one of those earldoms that could be inherited by a woman. Uh, Margaret petitioned that for it to be returned to her. And in 1513, Henry agreed. So Margaret became Countess of Salisbury in her own right. And it was one of the wealthiest earldoms in the whole country. She had an income somewhere around £2,000 per annum. Uh, the Duke of Buckingham, who was uh, top, the, the top noble, had around £4,000 per annum. But uh, Margaret's income was greater than that of the Dukes of Norfolk and of Suffolk. So she really was right at the top. And she lived like a great feudal magnet. She had hundreds of manor houses, several castles. She built uh, a great manor house at Warblington in Hampshire, which unfortunately there's just a one little tower is left now. She had one at Clavering. She had a, a London house right where Cannon Street Station is now. And yeah, she lived like a great feudal magnet. And she married her children into the uh, appropriate families. So her daughter Ursula was married to the heir of the Duke of Buckingham, which was the the best marriage in the country for a girl. Uh, so had things gone well, Ursula would have become the highest ranking woman after the after the royal family. But unfortunately, in 1520, Ursula's father-in-law, the Duke of Buckingham, was accused of treason. Oh, sorry, 1521, May 1521. Buckingham was executed and Margaret's son, now Lord Montague, was associated with Buckingham and he spent some time in the Tower of London as well. Margaret herself had been appointed as governess to Henry and Catherine's daughter Mary but she was removed from her post in the wake of the Buckingham affair and under a bit of a cloud of suspicion because obviously the marriage between Ursula and Buckingham's son started to look a bit suspect when Buckingham was being accused of treason so Margaret and her family fell under a bit of a cloud. However at that time in the early 1520s Henry was somewhat less vengeful than he later became and Margaret was reinstated as governess to the Princess Mary in 1525 when Mary, like her uncle Arthur, was sent to Ludlow as uh, head of the uh, president of the Council of Wales on the Marches. Now Mary was only nine but so it was Margaret's role to make sure she was brought up properly, educated, uh, had enough exercise, wrote wrote her letters to her mother and father, you was healthy and happy and all those sorts of things and they were there for three years um, off and on between 1525 and 1528. Then in 1528 Mary was recalled to live and I quote, nearer to the king's person, so unquote. And there's some some question as to why why Henry decided to bring Mary back. It's possible that it it was 
for her health. She she had about a smallpox, so that might have been it. It might have been that you know Henry and Catherine were genuinely missing her, as they said, or it may have been related to the fact that Henry was now seeking to have his marriage to Catherine annulled, and in his own mind, he was going to probably replace Mary with a son who he hoped would quickly arrive when the when the Pope gave him permission to marry again. Unfortunately, of course, it didn't work out quite how Henry was planning. So there was a long hiatus between 1528 and 1533, when Margaret was still governess to Mary, who was still the king's daughter, the king's heir. And it wasn't until 1533 that Henry demoted Mary after the birth of Elizabeth. So Margaret offered to pay for Mary's household herself, but that was refused and she was um, dismissed from her post as governess. And uh, Mary was sent to Elizabeth and Margaret was basically sent to the country because her son, Reginald, who had been educated at Henry's expense, wrote the most surprisingly vicious attack on Henry the Henry the Eighth. It wasn't just a case of him disagreeing with the annulment. He wrote a paper that was full of personal abuse of the king, which uh, was tactless to say the least of it. And because Reginald was safely in Europe, effectively damaged his mother and his brothers. So Margaret and her older son, uh, Lord Montague, effectively disowned Reginald and said, you know, he's you know, he's ungrateful and undutiful and he should and they wrote to him and said, Reginald, you know, you must obey the king he you know he's your sovereign and your master and so forth but reginald for, for the sake of, he, he couldn't in conscience agree to the annulment so he stayed in europe there, there was a rumor that uh, henry's government attempted to have him assassinated now whether henry would have gone as far as assassination is is debatable although he, his government certainly um paid for a scottish cardinal to be assassinated so possibly he would have gone that far but it, anyway the, the, if there was such a plot it didn't come to anything but margaret was now under suspicion as were her other sons montague and arthur had died and geoffrey margaret so, so far as i have evidence she wasn't ever actually asked to sign the oaths of uh, supremacy and succession some women were some women weren't but montague certainly did and his brother Geoffrey probably did as well. But Henry knew that they, they weren't happy with the situation, but they, they, they accepted it. So during the late 1530s, so Reginald had written this letter in, 15, in 1536. During the late 1530s, Margaret was, she occasionally attended the court. After Mary was reconciled to Henry in 1536, there was a general reconciliation of, of uh, the former supporters of Catherine once Anne was, was dead. But she wasn't restored as Mary's governess, and she, you know, she played a much much lesser part in court life than she had previously. And of course, she was well into her sixties by now. In 1538, things got worse, and Margaret didn't do herself any favours in that she argued with the king about some property. Now Henry had restored the earldom of Salisbury to her, and you could say that you know uh, Margaret was standing on her rights. But uh, the king believed that one of the manors she thought was hers was his. And it may have been more sensible for her to just let it go. But she didn't. And she kept arguing over this this property matter. Being so tenacious of her rights was was probably not a very wise political move. Geoffrey Poole and was a foolish man and he drank. And he started talking unwisely about uh, how you know, the world was going to hell in a handcart and um writing to his brother in is who was still in Europe, Reginald. And Cromwell got wind of this, not surprisingly. Yeah, Geoffrey was clapped in the tower 
left there for a couple of months without being questioned to panic, uh, got so distressed he tried to kill himself but was prevented. And then the more he tried to excuse himself, the more and his family, the more everybody got dropped in it. So he told he said that Montague had criticized the king, calling him full of flesh and unwieldy, which obviously Henry didn't want to hear about, and that he was a bad character and, you know, everything was appalling. And I mean, you can you can see the sort of thing talk. But this was leapt upon as evidence of treason. And as well as Montague being involved was Marquis of Exeter, Henry's cousin, uh, daughter of Cath- a son of Catherine of York. He was involved and it became called the Exeter Conspiracy. Now, there's no strong evidence that there was any real conspiracy, but Margaret's lands were along the south coast. So if Reginald Poole had managed to persuade Charles the Emperor Charles and Francois to invade. Of course, Margaret's lands would have been a very super place for them to to land. So although there's no real evidence, you can see that there was there was enough for a paranoid uh, king like Henry to think that um, there, this was actually a, a real conspiracy against him. Montague was executed. Geoffrey uh, was a broken man and was allowed to go free. Mm. And Margaret was put under house arrest at Cowdray Castle and she clearly made herself very unpleasant because the Earl's wife refused to stay in the castle if Margaret was there unless her husband was there. So you can imagine that um, she, she knew how to make herself difficult. Now the Earl was very sure that Margaret knew nothing of anything that uh, her sons might or might not have been up to. He described her as having the courage that she was almost a man. She was so steadfast and courageous. Uh, but in Tudor minds, that was that was quite a compliment to be almost a man. <laughs> sure. um, and so Margaret was, you know, swore absolutely that she knew of no no conspiracy. However, um, after a while, she was taken from house arrest, and this was a good opportunity to get Salisbury back for Henry. She was attainted uh, by Parliament, which is effectively a declaration that you're guilty of treason without a trial. And off she went to the tower. All of her lands were taken. And having started as a royal princess, fallen down to the bottom of the heap uh, after her father was executed, climbed back up to be Countess of Salisbury. She was now back to being the widowed Lady Margaret Poole, money living in the tower at the king's expense. She was there for uh, till 1541. Then one one day in May, the uh, the constable came in and said, um, "Madam, today's the day you're going. You're going to die." And Margaret was horrified. She said, "She, you know, what was she accused of? She'd had no trial. She'd had nothing. And in fact, even a couple of months before, Henry had sent her some warm clothes in the tower. So he was possibly um, weakening. But then there was rumor. There was a rumor of another conspiracy, completely unrelated. But uh, he probably thought it was a good time to to polish off Margaret. So she was taken out to the tower, um, and." butchered by a, a junior headsman who who had no training. It was quite <laughs> gruesome, wasn't yes. it? That Yes. Now I I don't know that the story that she she ran ran around the scaffold and had to be um you know forcibly restrained. I'm not sure that that actually dates from the time, but that is one of the one of the stories that that you know she refused to lay down because she said she wasn't a traitor, but it's a it's a very distressing thought to think of a, an elderly woman, you know, nearly 70 to be um hacked by a 
by a butcher. So can you tell me just a little bit going back earlier in her life? Um, she lost her while well, her mother died, then she lost her father. And then she lost her brother, wasn't it in part because of the marriage with Catherine of Aragon, um, that Ferdinand kind of asked that her brother be killed because he was a potential figurehead of a rebellion. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about like what happened with that and if she how that affected her relationship with Catherine, if at all? I find it interesting that these women still maintained relationships, even while the mm. men were yes it's strange isn't it how they sort of divorced their their personal friendships from their familial ties yes uh, if you go back to the wars of the roses margaret of anjou and Cicely neville were actually on much better terms than their husbands it, it, it is strange but after the battle of bosworth in 1485 uh margaret's brother warwick who was uh, uh ten and a half so coming up to his 11th birthday he un well for the initially he was um he, he, like Margaret, was was brought to London and housed with probably with Margaret Beaufort. But then he soon um, found himself in the Tower. Now, Henry VII was a man who liked legality. He was not a secret murderer. He liked everything to be done with at least a show of um, a, a, of, of legality. So Warwick was in the Tower, but he was, um, you know, not executed or anything. Then. Not that that's any excuse, but he was he was, he was maintained there. <laughs> and then in the 1490s, along came well, initially along came Lambert Simnel, pretending to be the Earl of Warwick. So Henry paraded uh, Warwick up and down the streets of London, saying, "No, no, the chap in Dublin can't possibly be the Earl of Warwick because here he is." And Lambert Simnel's uh, invasion, you know, that that collapsed and uh, Simnel went to, to turn the spit in the king's kitchen and Warwick went back to the tower. Then later there was the Perkin Warbeck rebellion and, and Warbeck um, claimed to be the younger son of Edward IV. And the two were housed next to each other in the tower after after Warbeck w w went, to, went to the tower. And it was alleged that uh, Warbeck and Warwick uh, got together to try to... Um, come up with an escape plan for them both now it's very likely of course that this was engineered so that they were they, they were trapped or what's the word um enticed and trapped um in into committing a, an allegedly treasonable offense and as you say uh this was very likely to have been at the instigation of ferdinand and isabella who didn't want this to send their daughter to a country where uh, her husband might be overthrown at any time so Warwick and Warbeck were entrapped into this um, alleged attempt to escape and Warwick was executed. It was, it, Henry felt guilty about this for the rest of his life, in fact, because he, obviously he knew it was a put up job. So he had, um, you know, done a, done, a, done a very bad thing. And Catherine, it said, also felt guilty about it for the rest of her life. So that may have been possibly the reason why she was um, fond of Margaret and did want to make her her life as good as possible. And possibly she may have influenced Henry to grant her the Earldom of Salisbury uh, as, as compensation, at least in part, for the loss of her brother. Now, uh, and how attached Margaret can have been to her brother is, is debatable. I mean, she last saw him when she was about 12 and he was about 10. And it was um, some 14 or 15 years later that he was executed. 
So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not I'm not saying that she wasn't personally distressed by it, but it it is unlikely they had a very close personal relationship. So, you know, but but of course, the, the, the whole situation would be would be hugely upsetting. One of the most interesting things I found about her was actually her how she lived as a as a well effectively as an earl she was a female earl she wasn't just a, you know she was she was a countess but she had vast lands to to administer she had a council uh, and this was the common way of doing it and they administered her lands on her behalf and she took strategic decisions about what she wanted to hold what she wanted to keep what but she seems to have taken a reasonably hands-on approach to to being a a, a great lord and she was also considered um, to, to have a place in the household of the Countess of Salisbury was uh, a great achievement for for a young woman. So there's lots and lots of um, letters from courtiers and noblemen saying, "Please, will you give a place to my daughter?" Because there was there was no better place for them to be brought up if if they couldn't get into the Queen's household. Uh, Lady Salisbury was was next, really, uh, of the great the great ladies that they could um, put their daughters with. So it was like a finishing school for her, her young gentlewomen. And yeah. even, and why did she never remarry? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? My guess is that if I were if I were Countess of Salisbury in my own right, why would I want to introduce a husband into the picture? Because he would instantly have uh, taken charge. So. Although, yeah, she could have had marriage articles drawn up that would have, you know, retained her her control. That was that would have been to make more more waves than just to not remarry and continue to control control it herself. Um, I'm surprised she wasn't kind of forced into a marriage, though, to secure her loyalty or something. But there was the, the only people who could have forced her would have been Henry and Catherine. And from Henry's point of view, in the in the early years of his reign, he was he was attempting to get on well with his York relatives. I mean, he he promoted uh, Margaret and her sons, uh, paid for the, the somewhat ungrateful Reginald's education. Um, his other, the, the Marquis of Exeter, he promoted him. So, so so he wanted to get on well with his York cousins. Um, there was no probably nobody of a suitable age and in fact from henry's point of view probably marrying her to another great noble would actually um you know potentially make her more powerful or him more powerful you know the the husband more powerful so keeping her single probably didn't hurt now she was widowed just looking at how old she was when she was widowed in uh, 1504 uh so she was what does that make her uh 27 yeah so only only in her early 30s only yeah only 31 so uh, but during during henry the seventh's reign he possibly may have got round to remarrying her but when when she was widowed he was um he had gone into the rather morose period that he he went into after the death of elizabeth and arthur another interesting thing is as as late as talking about the influence she had as a you know a, a great lady in 1537 after um mary had gone back to court and uh, uh in in the and Jane Seymour was queen, uh, Margaret started receiving letters again asking her to um, make for favours with, with the queen. So she was asked by uh, Lady Lyle on a, on a Grenville, who we've talked about previously, to find a place to, to talk to Queen Jane about places for Honour's daughters. So it was instantly assumed that Margaret would once again be influential after the death of Anne Boleyn. But I don't think Margaret had as much influence as uh, Lady Lyle hoped. 
I get the impression that Henry didn't like her um, personally, that there was some some quarrel, possibly because he thought she was ungrateful, but uh, or possibly because she was Catherine's friend. You, you definitely get the impression there was some personal dislike here. Well, where can we learn more about her? The standard biography, which is very, very thorough, is by Hazel Pierce. It's it's quite an academic work, but it's full of really interesting information about her life as a countess and quite a lot on the extra conspiracy, which which saw the end of her sons. Which, go and see her, her chantry in Christchurch. Susan Higginbottom has written uh, Margaret Poole, a, a biography. Uh, for novels, there's Samantha Wilcoxon's Faithful Traitor. And... Uh, Lady Salisbury makes quite an important appearance in the old Hilda Lewis trilogy about Mary, uh, which I think is out of print now, but good if you can get hold of a copy. I am Mary Tudor, it's called. Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us about Margaret Pohl. For more information on her, go to tudortimes.co.uk or see the resources available on the Englandcast site at englandcast.com. And remember, if you like this podcast, The best ways you can help us succeed is to leave a review on iTunes, or you can tell a friend about it. Seriously, tell your friends to listen. When you're all like at work and you're talking about what you're watching on TV, what you're reading, tell your friends to check out the podcast. Seriously, you know they're going to like it, so just tell them. It really makes a huge difference to the show, and thank you. So the next episode in about two weeks is going to be on some of the more well-known antiquarians and early historians of Tudor England. I thought it was really interesting to think about the people who were already practicing history during this period that we are now looking back at. So we're going to look at some of the chroniclers who've made this period so much more accessible to us than other periods. We'll talk about people like Edward Hall and others like him. So stay tuned for that. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And we will talk with you again soon. Blow northern wind, a scent will make me sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrick, that soli semis on sea. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.